Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We were talking about the election last night. Remember, if you were here last night, Bill Kelly did an amazing job from 7 till 11. We were here from 6 till 7, and in that protracted, not protracted, subtracted, reduced, we'll just use simpler words so I can understand what I'm talking about, reduced version of the Scott Radley Show, we were talking to people about whether they went out and voted. I hope you did. I really hope you did. One of the results of that voting yesterday was the return to council of Brad Clark, newly elected Ward 9 councillor who joins us now. Brad, how are you today? Congratulations. Thank you very much, Scott. I'm doing fantastic. Now that you have been able to take a breath and you have won and the campaigning is over and all that stuff, do you, did, you, did you get to think about last night or over the last number of weeks of how much you did or didn't miss being a councillor? Um, I knew I missed being a councillor. I've always been a bit of a policy wonk. Um, I enjoy working uh, with the other councillors and the staff and, and, and developing policies that really make lives better in Hamilton. So I knew I missed that. Um, the election itself was exhausting. <laughs> and I've been out for 13 hours now taking signs down. So <laughs> this is, but one of the things that was interesting about this is you, uh, now I stand to be corrected, but I double checked this. So I think I'm not wrong. You were the only challenger to topple an incumbent in this election. Uh, says something about how hard that is to do. Uh, defeating an incumbent is very challenging. Uh, the name recognition is significant. Um, I've done it, actually, I did, I've done it twice now on city council, Phil Bruckler and, and then uh, uh, my friend uh, Doug Conley. Uh, it, it's, if, you, if you talk to any of the candidates that ran against incumbents, they can tell you just how difficult a, a job it is. Well, I mean, with the exception of Ward 15, where it was very, very close for Judy Partridge, all the other incumbents, and again, except for Ward 9, where you ran, all the other incumbents really ran away with the race. It says something, and and, I mean, maybe this is a a topic for a deeper dive closer to the next election, but it really says something about the power of that position and the name recognition that comes with it and everything else. Yeah, if you look historically, and, and I've studied it many times across the province, um, in every municipality, the incumbency factor, which is what they call it, is really a significant factor in the outcome of an election. Um, and it was fascinating for me to watch what happened in Burlington, for example, where the majority of the incumbents um, lost mm-hmm. their seats. Mm-hmm. Very unusual. Rarely ever happens. That was history in the making in Burlington, for sure. Is that something then that, and this is a bigger issue than Brad Clark in Ward 9 can deal with right now, but is that something that deserves to be looked at then from a an electoral position uh, that we may want to, I mean, this seems to be one of the arguments for a, a cap on how many terms somebody can serve, but yeah. is, is that a bigger issue than we want to dive into? It, it would be a provincial issue. Uh, of course, start. of course. Um, and I... <laughs> I'm not so sure you will ever have a provincial government that that is keen on putting a term limit on a municipal partner uh, without doing it themselves. <laughs> so the likelihood of term limits happening very slim. I do think ranked balloting might happen before term limits, and I know that London uh, yes. experimented with ranked balloting this time, and I'm interested in seeing the outcome. But I think ranked balloting, it, that's where... Um, people who who drop off, um, they get to vote again, in essence. So you vote for, for two or three different candidates, 
And if your candidate doesn't win, then your next choice moves up until you get 51%. And, and that might actually ch- change the, the, the status quo, if you will, for incumbency. The other thing about th- that happened yesterday, uh, before we dive into you and what you're going to be doing on council, but the other thing that I really that struck me was we had 34% voting last time. This time it went up to 38%, but 38% is still a, a woeful number. And, and this was an election that had a serious issue that I think most people felt pretty strongly one way or the other about, and it still couldn't get people out to the polls. What's your theory on why it's so difficult to get people to actually go and vote? Um, knocking on doors and talking to people, I bet you I had four or five out of ten people indicating to me that it's a waste of time. They're exasperated. They, they, they believe that all politicians are the same and nothing ever changes. And so when, if they have that mindset going in, then there is no impetus. There is nothing to motivate them to go out and vote because they don't think anything's going to change. And, how, and it's been pretty difficult to actually change their mind. I don't know how you change that then. Once that sets in, I don't know how you fix that. No, no, exactly. It, it almost becomes a, a, an apathy or complacency. Uh, and I was really struck by it. I, I mean, I, I talked to people who were well-educated and, and just was, they were not going to vote because nothing changes. Um, and, and I think it's a, a prevalent mindset right across um, the country. Well, it must be. Again, it was 38% only, so that means 62% of people decided to take a pass, which uh, I'm, you know, is, is disappointing. It's but... shocking when you consider that this is the level of government that truly impacts people the most. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Chatting with Brad Clark, newly elected, newly elected Ward 9 councillor, back at it again. You know him. He's been there before. He's been an MPP. He's been around. He's been on this show a lot. That, that's my biggest disappointment, Brad. I've lost my local <laughs> political commentator. Um, many said this election, including Vito Scroll, when he was on here last Thursday, said this election was a, especially the mayoral side, was a referendum on the LRT. It was the dominant topic of this election. You took a strong stand against the LRT. You wanted to go with the plan B of the billion dollars for other infrastructure and other transit around the city. Uh, first things first, Fred won pretty handily in the mayoral race. Was this a referendum? I don't believe it was a referendum. Uh, there were many issues uh, that voters were having to consider when looking at uh, the mayoralty candidates and uh, the candidates for, for council. Uh, so, I, you know, no one's psychic. We really don't know exactly why people were voting for Fred or why people were voting for Vito. Um, and likewise, in, in the wards, in, in my ward, for example, four out of the five candidates were opposed to LRT. Um, so I'm not sure how that translates into uh, Fred's victory. Uh, I, I sincerely believe that people sit back and they look at the entire candidate and they may not like some of their positions on things, but they look at the candidate and say, well, no, this is the fellow or lady that I want that's going to actually represent me the, the, the best. That sounds like you not saying that you are now in favor of LRT. Well, I'm not in favor of LRT. If that's your, if that but was that, the question. That, that, has not, that hasn't changed. You haven't looked at the mayoral race and said that looked like a lot of the people across the city actually were in favor. You've not interpreted it that way. No, overwhelmingly, the residents in Ward 9 expressed opposition to LRT. 
um, they really do see um, significant challenges with transit. For example, in Ward 9, if you want to, to uh, go to McMaster University as a student, you have to get on the Stone Church bus, you have to shoot across the mountain, go downtown, and then connect to the B-Line. So three buses before you get down to McMaster. And yet we have a bus going down Centennial Parkway, but there's no buses connecting to Centennial Parkway through Ward 9. So the folks living in Penny Lanes, in, in Empire Homes, in Heritage Green, they have to walk to Centennial Parkway if they want to take that bus downtown, or they have to take a 90-minute bus ride to get to Eastgate, for example. So we need to make transit more convenient, and that's what I was hearing uh, a great deal at the door. By Andrew Dreschel's count in the spec today, and I think it's pretty commonly held, but he wrote a great piece today, uh, six people around council now for the new council are strong, avowed supporters of LRT. Six are against it, and uh, four, including the mayor, if you count, there's uh, 16, if you add all those up, are in the middle somewhere. And because it's a new council, it's just a majority vote that's required to start changing things. Are, are you going to be pushing for this? Are you going to be leading the charge then to try and get this thing voted on again and maybe look at changing things? The first vote that I know of that will be coming up on LRT will be the operational agreement. Uh, and, I, and I will be opposing it because my residents are, are very clearly opposed to it. I don't know what other councillors are going to be doing, but I do know that in my ward I have many, many other issues that are a significant priority that residents have asked me to deal with. But if the operations budget is voted down, and that could happen in this case, yes. does that not take us, I don't want to say back to the beginning, but it throws the whole thing into question. It's going to take us into a new detour in this discussion. It's not going away then. Uh, if the operational agreement is defeated because of the cost to that agreement, uh, then yes, you know, the, the council will have to be looking at a plan B. What are they going to do? And, and I think it's too early to, to figure out exactly what council wants to do. And I think there was a number of councillors who have expressed that they want to hear from Queen's Park and, and find out exactly um, what options are on the table for the city of Hamilton. And there are others who are very pro-LRT who will vote for it and, and, and try to move it along. Um, I've never been an obstructionist. If council makes a decision, the decision moves forward. I make my vote, and 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 I live another day. That said, you you have acknowledged before that in your previous term of council, uh, there were times when you were the the conservative voice. You were the one who was the whipping boy for some of the people on the other, the progressive, the left wing side of things. I mean, it, it, would it shock you if that happened again? Um, I think when emotion, when issues are emotional, uh, and people are emotionally invested in something like LRT and they're pro LRT, um, it's a little bit easier for some of them to become um, more personally critical of of individual counselors as opposed to being substantive on the issue. And I think that's just human nature. And, and we take it, um, you know, it's, it's a part of, of the job. Um, but I, everyone I've talked to, I don't think anyone actually has animosity for, for any, any counselor. It's because they're so invested in an issue and they want something to happen. And if someone is voting against it, they might strike out personally. And sometimes counselors do, too, in the heat of the moment. Um, but you, you, I, I just forgive and move on. 
we only have a few seconds left. Will you know, will all the councillors have talked to each other and felt each other out to get a sense before that operations uh, structure comes forward? Will you know what's going to happen before that vote comes down? Uh, I honestly don't know because I've been surprised in the past. I'd like to say yes, but I honestly don't know. That is Brad Clark. He is the new councillor, the new returning councillor for Ward 9. Appreciate the time today. Congratulations again. Thanks, Scott. Anytime. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you're a regular Netflix watcher, and who among us aren't, if you're a regular viewer, you may have, you probably have watched the series Narcos, outstanding series. And if you have watched Narcos, you will know all about my next guest. He was the real life DEA agent who was portrayed in the show who was trying to catch drug lord Pablo Escobar in Colombia back in the 80s and 90s at the height of his reign. On Friday, he and his partner, his DEA partner Javier Pena, will be speaking at the Burlington Performing Arts Center about that, about his career, about trying to track down Pablo Escobar. His name is Steve Murphy. He joins me now. Steve, how are you today? Hey, Scott. I'm fine. How are you, buddy? Excellent. Thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Uh, here in Canada, we just legalized cannabis. I'm sure you've heard all about this. And that has led to a discussion, led to a lot of people uh, rethinking some things. And I've been reading lately about the war on drugs. And people are now thinking about it maybe in a different light, that it was a, a quaint idea of a, of a past time and that maybe it was looks rather ridiculous now in this light of some modern thinking, I'm guessing with what you've seen, you might hold a slightly different perspective on the war on drugs. Uh, maybe just a little bit. <laughs> How? Because we, we look at it now, especially now we know that Pablo Escobar wasn't dealing in pot, but we, we look at it, as I say, almost like a quaint thing that was a failure. It was Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan saying, just say no. What was your perspective on it? How, how, what was the problem with everything back at the time you got involved with this? Well, you know, Scott, when they said the, the term war on drugs is one of the biggest misnomers you'll ever hear. Because, uh, you know, what we do when we declare war on somebody or a country, what do we do? We, we commit manpower, we commit, materi- you know, commit materials, we get our allies all lined up, and we go in to win. Well, in this war on drugs, you know, we're going against the world's most wanted criminal, the world's first narco-terrorist. This guy is nothing more than a mass murder responsible for tens of thousands of murders of a lot of innocent people, not to mention, you know, those that his competitors, I guess would be a nice way to say it. But anyway, go back to this war on drugs. What did we send down there from the United States? Two guys, Javier and I. Is that a war? (laughs) Well, it's a, yeah, I don't know what you would call that. What do you call a war with two people? I'm not really sure what that is. Uh, Now, when you went there, though, when you were sent, did you believe in the, again, we'll use that phrase, even though, again, you've just explained that it's probably not the best word, but did you believe that the war on drugs was a real important thing, or were you just sent on assignment, and so you were trying to find him because that was your assignment? It was, it was a little bit of both, to be honest with you. It's, um, you know, I've never been a proponent of legalizing any drugs. It's, uh, you know, people say, well, marijuana, it's equivalent to alcohol. Well, maybe it is. I don't know. What I do know is I, my oldest son is, is a surgeon here in the United States, and I've asked him to conduct research for me, and he can't find any uh, credible sources that say, you know, marijuana is, has medicinal purpose. Now, 
if you know anything about DEA, that's never DEA's job is to go after the users. You know, we, we're our goal was to always go after the biggest traffickers in the world that were having a negative impact on the United States. So, you know, I'll be honest with you, and, and uh, you know, I, I'll ask all my law enforcement brothers and sisters to forgive me for saying this. If you're in chronic pain, nobody in the world deser- deserves to live in chronic pain. And if you think psychologically that smoking weed relieves that pain, honestly, I don't have a problem with that. I'm not going to come right out and say, go smoke weed, because that's what somebody will interpret my message as. <laughs> but, uh, you know, if, the, if you think it relieves that pain, I'm really okay with that. What we're more concerned with is the people like Pablo Escobar, like Chapo Guzman in Mexico, about the big criminals syndicates around the world who are just poisoning everybody. I mean, you know, we're, uh, I'm not sure if you have the same problem in Canada, but I'm pretty sure you do with the heroin, opioid, and fentanyl issue. 100%, yep. It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, and fentanyl, it doesn't take grams to kill you. It takes grains, and we're talking like grains of salt. Just a few grains will cause an overdose. It's just ridiculous. For those who don't remember, they remember the name. Everybody knows the name Pablo Escobar, but for those who don't remember the details, take 30 seconds or a minute. At his peak, at at the height of his power, we'll call it, how big a deal, how big a criminal, how big an enterprise was he the head of? (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what, he introduced a business model of drug trafficking first to the United States and then to the rest of the world, which put him in a position where he was responsible for as much as 80% of the cocaine in the entire world. One person. Now, um, let's see what else. He was also the America, he was the world's most wanted criminal. And if you remember the TV show America's Most Wanted, they actually sent a TV crew to Columbia and did one episode only of the world's most one, and that was a show on Pablo Escobar. Javier and I took him up to Medellin, and, and we filmed for a week with them. This is a guy who Forbes magazine rated as the seventh richest person in the world. I never, <laughs> Nobody's ever been able to explain to me how they came up with that, but estimated wealth between 8 and $30 billion, billion dollars with a B. So if you compare that to, let's say, Chapo Guzman, everybody knows who Chapo is, the Mexican bandit that's in custody here in the United States. For now. His estimate. <laughs> <laughs> good point. <laughs> Very good point. His estimated wealth was $1 billion. Wow. And Pablo was 30 And you know what's even funny about that? When that first article came out and estimated Pablo's wealth, his son called Forbes Magazine and said, no, 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 you guys got it all wrong. It's a whole lot more than $30 billion. <laughs> well, I read something today as I was preparing to talk to you, and it said that at the high, again, at the height of his enterprise, he was bringing in, or the cartel was bringing in $70 to $80 million a day, which is just, it's, a, it's stunning. It is. And you know what they loved was, we call it bulk cash. They loved getting the U.S. dollars back down into Columbia. You know, they wanted them in their possession. But then that creates an issue because what do you do with all that cash? I mean, you're talking rooms and rooms and rooms and rooms full of just physical cash money. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Chatting with former DEA agent Steve Murphy. He is the guy you see portrayed on the Netflix show Narcos. And Steve, we, you've been just saying for the last however many minutes we've been chatting, explaining the problems with Pablo Escobar, the killings that he did, the importing of all this cocaine that ruined lives in the States and in Canada and around the world. And yet down there in Colombia, many people then and now still see him as a hero or even almost as a saint. Why is that? Well, he does have this, uh, this myth that he's some type of a Robin Hood. 
you know, and did he take money? Did he build housing for people who literally lived on the edge of a trash dump? Yes, he did. Let them live there for free. He gave them money. He gave them food. He built clinics. He built soccer fields. And all those are really good things. I mean, that's a very humanitarian act. But when he needed more Sicarios, more assassins, because his assassins were being killed in firefights, where do you think he went to get those people? Mm. He went right back to that neighborhood. So what we say is he, he's not a Robin Hood. He's a master manipulator. He, he manipulated these people to where they loved him so much, they were willing to kill for him and they were willing to die for him. But he even today, apparently, now I have not been down to Columbia, but again, reading some stuff, even today he is revered in many places down there. Well, not a lot of places uh, that I've seen. We've been to Columbia a few times over the past few years, filmed with narcos and so forth. And there is one neighborhood in, in Medellin, it's Barrio Pablo Escobar. And I, I tell you what, if you go there, I certainly wouldn't say anything bad about Pablo in that neighborhood. <laughs> he is viewed as a, a mythical hero. At that but time, sorry, at that time, though, Steve, when you when he back when he's alive, back when you're trying to catch him, when he has that Robin Hood-like aura to him, how much more difficult does it make to catch him then? Well, it, it was not only that. It, it made it very difficult, but it wasn't only that. People knew that if they said anything about him, you know, he would just kill them. And he didn't just kill them. He killed their entire families, their wives, their parents, their children. He took out entire families to get his way. So that sends a pretty strong message that, you know what, I think I'll keep my mouth shut and not say anything about this guy. <laughs> Had you expected that when you went down? Like, how much did you know ahead of time? You'd obviously done research, you'd done preparing and planning, but di- did you realize before you started this just how difficult it was going to be? Well, you know what, I didn't know I was going to be working on the Escobar case until I got to Columbia. Mm. But I'd, I'd been in Miami for four years, and I think every case that I worked on down there, and we, and, you know, we were seizing hundreds and hundreds of kilograms of cocaine, Every case was tied back to the Medellin cartel and Pablo Escobar. So I was very familiar with the guy already. You said, and you're speaking again, by the way, we're talking to you because you're speaking in Burlington on Friday at the Burlington Performing Arts Center. And on the press release, it says that audience members will be free to ask you anything they want after you talk. And so I'm going to test that out right now. Um, Did you, when you look back on this, because of the spot you were in, because of the difficulty and the danger that you were in at times, was there anything you ever did that you look back now and say, you know what, I crossed the line at that point to try and catch this guy? No. And, and, and I will tell this in the show. And it's correct. We will answer questions. Um, we, did we break rules, policies, and procedures every stinking day? Did we ever break the law one time? Not a single time. You know, and, it, and I've got a little platform. I like to talk about integrity. You know, there's a lot of things that you can't control in your life, but you can control your integrity. But once you give it up, it's like virginity. You don't get it back. He knew you were looking for him, though, right? He uh, Maybe not you by name, but he knew people were trying to catch him. He had to. Oh, he, he knew us by name. We heard him on wire, tele, you know, we call it wire intercepts when you tap somebody's telephone. We heard him mention the two gringos. We heard him mention the names Pinion Murphy. And he actually put a bounty on both of us. So how are you still alive? Honestly, how are you still alive? I'm a tough guy, Scott. What are you doing? (laughs) Yeah, but you're not bulletproof. (laughs) I mean, maybe you are. I don't know. But but, I mean, Uh, with with what he did to all the other people who turned on him or tried to get rid of him or tried to stop him, you're still talking to me. How? You know what? If you come to the show and ask that question, we have an answer that will explain it all. I just want to bait you a little bit to come in. (laughs) And I'll tell you right now. There's nothing tough about Javier and I. We were just a couple of professional police officers 
that got to work this really big case. We're not tough guys at all. You were involved somehow, and I can't remember how. You were involved in his death eventually, right? Somehow? Yeah. Well, if you watch the series, Narcos, it shows that I was on the roof when Pablo was killed, and that's absolutely false. And that's one of the things we cover in the show is we tell everybody how much of of Narcos is true. You know, in in our opinion, we'll tell you what's true, what's kind of true, and what's false. When he died, though, and he is, obviously, he's gone now, uh, did getting rid of him ultimately solve anything as far as stifling, again, to use that, well, the, the, the drug trade, or did it simply open doors for other people then to step into that void and take over? Man, you're hitting all the hot pots, the hot questions, too, because we get asked that question at almost every show we do. We do, we average about 75 shows a year right now, mm. so it's, it's kind of popular around the world. But... And our answer is, we did have a positive effect on cocaine tra- trafficking when Escobar was killed. But it only lasted for, what, a couple of weeks? Because we know the Cali cartel stepped up. So then we went after the Cali cartel, took them out. That lasted for a couple of weeks, and the North Valley cartel stepped up. And then a guy named Don Berna stepped up. And and we always oppose a question to the audience, you know, can you go out on the streets of Toronto tonight and buy cocaine? Of course you can. So did we have any real, really damaging effect on the cocaine trade? Not really. Well, there's just too much money in it, right? There's That's too much it. money for That's someone it. not to step into that void. It's, there's too much money and there's too many evil people in the world that are just waiting to take advantage of you and me, Scott. This is Steve Murphy. If you are interested in this, and you should be, uh, he is speaking with Javier Pena. They were both portrayed on Narcos, the Netflix series. You can see them Friday, this Friday, at the Burlington Performing Arts Center. Uh, Tickets are on sale there. It's Burlington PAC, burlingtonperformingartscenter.ca. Steve, I really, really appreciate the time today. Thank you for doing this. Oh, Scott, thanks for having me on the show. I tell you, if you come to the show, I hope you come. It'll be like nothing you've ever seen. We're going to have a little fun. It's, it's a dark topic, so we try to invoke a little humor and just have a little fun with the audience. And we really will answer your questions. You can ask us just about anything. Steve Murphy, thanks for the time. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me get to, uh, let me bring on Terry Pekoski. She's of the Hamilton Spectator, writes for the Spec. She's the beat writer for the Hamilton Bulldogs. Terry, thanks for joining me tonight. No problem. I want to talk tonight with you. I want to bring up this topic of Arthur Kaliev, who is a bit of a mystery man. But before we get into the mystery part of him, yeah. the Hamilton Bulldogs, in their three-plus years, have never produced a first-round draft pick for the NHL draft. They've had a third-round pick. They've had a fourth-round pick. They've had a fifth-round pick. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any doubt that Arthur Kaliev is going to be the first first-round pick for the Bulldogs. No, certainly not. I mean, unless something terrible happens, I don't even want to say it, but I mean, unless this kid gets injured and and even still, he's played so well so far this season that he could he could still go early. Uh it, I mean, it's kind of it's kind of unreal what he's doing right now and um I agree with you. I don't think there's much of a doubt unless his production really falls off that he's going in the, in the first round of the draft. Even if his production falls off. Now he has 13 goals in 13 games. Uh, but the thing that separates him and the thing that really makes him almost, a lot of people are saying he's almost NHL ready now. I don't think that's probably exactly there. I think he needs some seasoning. But he has probably the best one-timer, the best shot in the OHL right now. Oh, absolutely. It's it, it's interesting. I, I wrote a story maybe a month ago 
uh, in which I talked to several of the defensemen on the team who have to play against him in practice. And he uh, he doesn't let up at all in practice. Like this kid is just he's a, he's obsessed with scoring goals, uh, which I mean is easy to tell if you ever watch him play. But that it doesn't change in practice. He practices the way he plays, and and they told me that his shot is just deadly. And it doesn't really matter where it comes from if it's a one timer, which is sort of his specialty, uh, or if you know he's just skidding down the wing and fires, or if it's a, a rebound. I mean. He can score from anywhere, and uh, and it's always just a bullet of a shot. The other day, you were saying that you've never seen a guy who enjoys scoring more than him. Oh, no, the look on his face. I mean, if you were ever at a Bulldogs game, do yourself a favor and look at the video replay board after he scores a goal, uh, and you will never see a, a happier person in your life. I mean, he's just, he just glows. <laughs> It's it's funny because he's not a guy that really expresses that much emotion in interviews or off the ice. Um, but yeah, you put the stick in his hand and, and let him score a goal, and he is—I uh, mean—he's just thrilled. I was talking to Mackenzie Entwistle yesterday, who's the captain of the team. He's played. He's been at Chicago Blackhawks training camp. He's been at Arizona Coyotes training camp. He's been around some NHL guys, some very good players, and mm-hmm. he. Now, you know, it's always a hesitating thing when guys do this, when they start dropping names, because I don't know that it's always fair, but he dropped the O-bomb on (laughs) Kaliev yesterday and said that, in his opinion, his shot is, it's very Ovechkin-like. Now, I I don't know that it's fair to make any comparisons to one of the greatest goal scorers of all time, Mm -hmm. but at the OHL level, certainly, I would put him... There, he's not Alex Ovechkin, NHL Alex Ovechkin, but in the OHL, that's who he is. He is the guy that can set up and just—it's all about timing, right? The one timer is all about timing, and he it does it better than anybody. He does, and I think the Ovechkin comparisons come especially because of where he scores a lot of those goals from, especially on the power play. I mean, he's 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 right on the on the dot. Uh, and in, he he the puck comes across. It's a one timer, and it's in the back of the net before. I know what has happened before the goalie knows what has happened. I don't really think anyone on the ice knows what has happened, and except he does, and you can see it on his face. Um, so I think, yeah, it doesn't surprise me. I don't, I don't know enough about the minutia of these things to, to analyze his shot movement by movement. But um, you know, from from my position, just at a at a hundred foot level, it, it certainly looks a lot uh, like what Ovechkin does, especially on the power play. Well, it's very baseball-like, because a one-timer is very much like hitting a pitch, because it's all about timing, and you're not stopping and controlling the puck, and the biggest challenge is that the ice in these rinks is not always ideal. It's not always perfect. So when a guy slides a pass over to you, not only are they not l- lobbing it there, I mean, they're firing these passes over to him. Yeah, but it's bouncing and wobbling, and it's timing, and it's uh, the, the thing that amazes me about his shot is that he always seems to get everything on it. He rarely ever fans on it. Rarely, rarely. And as you said, I mean these these pucks are coming at him at, at quite a clip. Um, and then for me, that's the amazing thing. It's just yeah, just the timing uh, because he's on he's shooting you know a second or two before the puck actually ends up on his his stick, and it just it, the whole thing happens so quickly. I mean, it's no wonder. He has a number of goals that he does because he's putting them on. I mean, his accuracy is sort of next level, um, and it, it just happens so fast that no one can react. The really interesting part about this guy, because his his skill, as I say, his skill is what's going to get him to be an NHL first round draft pick. And I, and I I 
would bet money that that's going to happen. Right now, a bunch of online sites have him listed as either 10th or 11th right now going into the draft. Uh, for him not to be in the first round, that means he's going to have to slide like 20 spots, which I just I just don't see happening. But he is also kind of an international man of mystery. <laughs> I mean, this is a guy, this is not your average Ontario, Hamilton or Toronto area guy who comes up through the GTHL and they go, oh, here's who, here's who he is. His story is very strange. The rumors were so rampant last year that he was not, in fact, a 16-year-old rookie, that he, you know, was like this 20-year-old from somewhere in Russia. But I actually had to write a story to debunk the rumors. I mean, other... It, Where did they come they from? Were, they were so rampant that other journalists were reporting them. So, uh, uh, you know, a point came that I actually had to write a story to debunk this and sat down with him and said, like, what do you... <laughs> where is this coming from? And what do you think of all of this? And... Uh, he thought it was hilarious, actually, um, because he, I mean, he was born, or so he says, in, uh, <laughs> in Staten Island, New York. And he is, in fact, 16, and that checks out. And, I mean, obviously the team has, you know, a passport and a birth certificate and all of this stuff on file for him. So you can't really lie your way into, into the OHL um, when it comes to this stuff anymore. But nobody's but, but got this. So, so the story is he's born in Staten Island, New York. His family now lives in Florida because his sister is is a tennis player. A very very gifted tennis player. I think it's his younger sister, and she's uh, she's playing at one of the academies in Florida. Okay, so he was born in New York. They live in Florida. He spent at least one year of his minor hockey career playing in Detroit for Compuware, which is an elite minor midget team. Yeah. He has a Russian name. He doesn't speak perfect English. It, like the whole story is no. very weird. Yeah, his um, his family is not. Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head. They're they're from somewhere in the Russia area, so I, I, somewhere like Uzbekistan or one of the like satellite that. countries. This one of the yeah. satellite countries, um, and and so he and they they don't speak English at home. <laughs> his parents barely speak English at all. So the fact that he um, he's come by this accent, honestly, because that's all they speak <laughs> with each, you know, among each other. Um, so, it, but it is sort of an odd scenario because I think people meet him and they hear him and think, you know, something is up here. Yeah, no way you're from Staten Island, New York with that <laughs> yeah, accent. Exactly. No exactly. one who's ever been raised and born in Staten Island sounds like you. We know what people from New York sound like and it's not that. Exactly, exactly. And there's just something about his whole sort of demeanor. I mean, he is, he is Ovechkin-like, you know, if uh, he, he kind of is and... So I, I see where this stuff comes from, um, but he, you know, he insists it's there's nothing too interesting going on there. But I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't believe him. There's more to this story somewhere, you know. Well, the other funny thing was I talked to a few guys around the team, and it's an odd question. It's a, it's kind of almost a creepy question, and I understand that to ask a bunch of teenagers about another teenager. But I essentially said, because of these rumors and everything else, like, does he have? a teenager's build and body, or is he a full grown, fully developed man? Because, you know, th- like there are guys you yeah. can tell, you can tell what a man looks like compared to a boy. You just, you can't. And even in the OHL where you have guys who have reached a certain level of maturity, you can see their musculature and their physicality. And it's way different from the 16 or 17 year olds that show up that are scrawny and good hockey players, but there's not much to them. And they all say, no, this, this guy's not there. 
Like he, he's not this, this 20 year old man that we keep hearing these stories about. He really is a 17 year old. Well, and it's funny you should say that because last year when I wrote that story, uh, I actually spoke with John Gruden, who was the head coach of the team at the time, who said, Terry, I mean, if you see this guy in the locker room and you're talking to him, you know, <laughs> you see him talking to the other guys on the team, there is no doubt that he's 16 years old. So I, uh, you know, he backs that up. Uh, he is, uh, it is remarkable what he's doing right now. 23 points in 13 games. He is more, well, no, not more. He is one point behind halfway to his last year's season total. And we're not yet at the quarter pole of the season. And the team doesn't have the same level of talent, honestly, that it did last year around him. So the fact that he's doing this is even more impressive. And the fact that he, and the coaches are the first ones to point this out. The fact that he's worked so much on his um, defensive game, which is one of his big focuses this season, uh, is really impressive. So that you know, even though he's scoring all these goals, he's he's also getting better in other areas of his, his game, which is really going to appeal to scouts down the line. Again, the guy's name is Arthur Kaliev. He wears number thirty-four. A bunch of the players, and it's it's a great thing they've come up with. They all want him to switch his number to forty-seven because the way he shoots, so he could be AK Arthur Kaliev, AK forty-seven. Uh, I don't think, they say he hasn't quite picked up on the joke yet, but, you know, give it time. (laughs) The marketing department will get on that one and tell him he's got to switch. Just before I let you go, because we only have a couple of minutes left here, there is also a really interesting story that is maybe brewing around the Bulldogs, which is their best player from last year, a guy they traded for at the trade deadline right after the World Junior Tournament, uh, Robert Thomas, who was on the Canadian World Junior team, came from the London Knights, led the team in scoring in the playoffs, won the playoff MVP award on the way to the Memorial Cup tournament. He graduated to the St. Louis Blues, and that was it. We were never going to see Robert Thomas back in Hamilton again because he was going to be playing full-time in the NHL. Well, the first few weeks in the NHL have been a little bumpy, and his yeah. last three games he's been a healthy scratch for St. Louis. Yeah. Uh, explain the nine game rule and explain what this actually means. All right. So the nine game rule is, uh, a a player of his age, um, a North American player of his age, I should say, which is 19, um, can play nine games, but no more in the NHL for whatever team they're, they're under contract with, um, and then be sent back to junior for another season. They're too young to go to the AHL or another team a minor league team of of the NHL team. Um, So they can be sent back to junior hockey without burning a year of their contract. So it's called a, a, it's a contract slide is the technical term, Um, which allows them to push it. It helps the team's salary cap. So the salary isn't on the cap that this is, I'm doing an absolutely terrible job of. No, 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 (laughs) no, no. So if you, if you've got Robert Thomas on your team as a St. Louis blues, you can decide Mm -hmm. If he's not going to play much this year, do you want to use a year of his contract? Which is probably, which is, you know, eight eight hundred, $900,000. But even then, it's it's also burning a year, so he's a year closer to becoming a exactly. free agent. So do you exactly. want to have him sit on the bench or sit in the press box and not do anything? Or do you want to send him back to junior and play a lot? And it looked like there was no chance this was going to happen. But again, in the last week or so, he's been scratched for the last three games. He's been getting very little playing time. He hasn't played all that well, certainly not numbers-wise with the Blues this year. 
And suddenly, even though Steve Steyos, who's the general manager of the Bulldogs at the start of this year, said, no, he's gone. We're never going to no see chance. him again. Mm-hmm. It, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but it's way more likely that it's going to happen now than it was four weeks ago. Yeah, I think if I'm Robert Thomas, the thing that concerns me is that I'm not getting much of an opportunity. So it's not like I'm getting a lot of ice time and it's just not quite working out right now. I mean, they're not even really giving him the minutes where he you know, can get out there and get comfortable and establish himself and make an argument for staying uh, yeah, like at most games, it's about six minutes a game he's getting on the ice. Around eight, between eight and nine minutes. So I think ten, ten or ten shifts, maybe, maybe. Yeah, yeah. at most. And um, at first, St. Louis's fourth line was sort of touted as something. Well, he's playing on the fourth line first of all, um, but it was touted as you know it was going to be this new style fourth line that's not a, a bunch of grinders. It's going to be. Um, you know, highly skilled line that they expect to score, and it just hasn't really worked out that way. That's not really the way that Mike Eo, the head coach, is um, is deploying it. So and the team you know, is losing. And the team is losing. Um, so there are a lot of things, a lot of different factors at play here. Uh, but I think the you know the prevailing one is simply that he's. I mean, he's not playing. And how can you expect someone to get better and develop if they're not on the ice? How impactful, honestly, would it be if he were to come back to Hamilton? And it's still a huge if. Like, we're, it's still a huge if. But if he were to come back here, what difference does he make for this team? Uh, I mean, he he was arguably the best player in the OHL last season. <laughs> so, you know, um, add to that some NHL experience. And, I mean, he's even better. So, a huge impact. I mean, not just on the team, but on the league uh, and uh, we're talking short-term and long-term. I mean, in the the immediate short-term, he steps right into the lineup and does big things for Hamilton. In a bit longer term, he, I mean, the, the team, which spent a ton to get him last season, um, I can't remember how many draft picks, as well as one of their top prospects in Connor McMichael. Uh, I mean, they could flip him at the trade deadline and get all of that back and replenish the stores. So, I mean, it's, it, you know, in both senses, this, this would be a very big deal for Hamilton. He has four games left before that nine-game uh, cap kicks in. We don't know when he's going to be back on the ice. They play Columbus tomorrow, no, Thursday. They play Columbus Thursday. He may or may not play. But, uh, again, that's going to be a really, really interesting thing because if all of a sudden Robert Thomas comes back here, a team that was – you know, defending champion, but not many people are giving a whole lot of chance to to repeat, suddenly becomes really, really, really interesting again. Well, and one caveat, do you know the Bulldogs actually have more wins at this time this season than they did a year ago? I did not know that, but I do now. So, you know what? They're, don't, don't count them out. I mean, adding him could be, maybe that convinces them they could go for it again. Terry Pekoski from the Hamilton Spectator. You can read her stuff about the Bulldogs. You can read her stuff about Arthur Kaliev, the way he's scoring goals. You'll be hearing that name a lot. Terry, thanks for doing this today. No problem. Thanks, Scott. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.